0: The Guardian. The major stories in British newspapers over the last few months have been about newspaper hacking scandals and riots. But perhaps at any other time, the headlines would have focused on the food shortages in the Horn of Africa. To date, the UN has officially declared famine in five regions in Somalia. Other areas of eastern Africa are struggling from the worst drought in 60 years. But this was a drought that was foreseen and the famine was predicted. In this week's Guardian Focus podcast, we'll put the food crisis in the Horn of Africa in context and ask why the problem escalated. And focusing on Somalia, we'll ask where the long-term answer lies in getting this country on track. Earlier this week, I spoke to our East African correspondent, Zan Rice, in Nairobi, to get a sense of the scale of what's happening. I asked him what areas have been affected.
1: Kenya, Ethiopia, Somalia are the worst affected areas. Um, Parts of Djibouti and Uganda have also been affected, though.
0: And the famine was declared in two regions of Somalia on the 20th of July. What's been happening since then? How has it developed?
1: Well, since then, famine's been declared in, in an additional three areas. Two of them in the, in the capital, Mogadishu, were very close to the capital where large numbers of displaced people have gathered. And the aid effort, since, since famine was declared, obviously the aid effort was, was stepped up in a, in a really big way and a lot more food aid is getting into Somalia than, than was the case a month or two ago. However, there are still significant problems in accessing the worsted areas because they're held by Islamist rebels.
0: Give us a sense of context. You talk there about droughts every couple of years. Uh, you know, how bad is this? And obviously, everybody wants to know how does it compare with you know Ethiopia in the early eighties.
1: Well, this is certainly very bad. I mean, I've I've been in the region now now seven years and covered uh, several droughts in the Horn of Africa. And while there's there's been always been a lot of people to feed, even more uh, in, in in prior droughts than than this time when there's about twelve or thirteen million in the Horn of Africa who need emergency food aid. This time, it's it's especially severe in Somalia. And I don't know if there's any comparison at this stage with what happened in Ethiopia in the early 80s when hundreds of thousands of people died. We're certainly not there yet in Somalia. At the moment, we're we're still in the the tens of thousands. And I think one of the problems in in making comparisons is that there's still very little access to the worst-hit areas in Somalia where, where in Ethiopia, journalists were actually getting in and aid agencies were getting in Um, to assess how bad things were at that time. So the picture is still pretty unclear as to how bad it is and how bad it may get.
0: You've travelled to the refugee camps in northern Kenya recently. What did you see in Dadaab?
1: Well, in Dadaab, the the numbers of people crossing the border in Dadaab are are extraordinary. Um, There's about 1,400 people still arriving every day. And this is the camp which has been in existence for 20 years, and it's been sort of over the years just getting bigger and bigger, 200,000, then 300,000, and people are always warning that, you know, the camp is full, the camp, we can't cope with this. Um, the the recent influx is, is on a different level to, to anything we've seen before. People are arriving there, some of them in, in very, very bad shape and having made extraordinary journeys. Um, some I'd say the majority are arriving by, by truck or lorry, but significant numbers are actually coming on foot, literally with nothing, you know, the, the clothes on their back, um, and just arriving and, and settling outside the camps, just in the bush, and, and waiting for assistance.
0: And what's the feeling in Nairobi about this influx? I mean, Kenya ends up having to deal with a lot of refugees coming over its borders.
1: Yeah, I think there's there's two issues with Kenya. First first of all, the Somali issue, and um, certainly from the government's perspective, they're very concerned about the numbers of Somalis coming in. I mean, Dadaab is now... In, in terms of numbers, it's the third biggest city. I mean, it's not a city, but just in terms of population, it's the third biggest city in Kenya. And Kenya has had, uh, has got very real concerns about the terror threat from Somalia. And it's also got concerns that um, the refugees, I mean, this, this might sound a little bit perverse, but the refugees are actually being treated better than the Kenyans who live in the areas around Dadaab, who are marginalized and get very li- little in the way of services. So the government's pretty sensitive about that as well. I think the second issue is, is the drought in Kenya itself, which is bad, and millions of people do need food aid. And I think there's a sense among ordinary Kenyans that this is an embarrassment for the country, that this, this is happening all the time, this is not a country at war, this is a, a stable country, not rich but certainly not as poor as some in the region and can't feed its own people. And one of the positive things that has come out this time and which hasn't happened in, in previous droughts that I've seen is that ordinary Kenyans are, are chipping in, and I think there's there's a certain amount of pride in that as well, that Kenya's starting to deal with this themselves, perhaps not at a government level, but certainly at an individual level.
0: I'm joined in the studio by David Bull, Chief Executive for UNICEF UK, Samir El Awari from the Overseas Development Institute, and Jamal Osman, a journalist who came to the UK from Somalia and has been reporting on the country. We've heard about the situation across the Horn of Africa, but we're going to focus on Somalia, where clearly the crisis is most acute. Jamal, you walked from Somalia to Dadaab in northern Kenya with some of the thousands of refugees leaving. Let's hear part of your report.
2: 20 years ago, I left Somalia on foot, walking for days to flee violence and hunger. Now I'm here to talk to families escaping this new crisis. Mukhtar Rabi, the village elder, showed me where he used to water hundreds of cattle. People from
3: this village have died from starvation. The situation is unbearable.
2: Everywhere I look, the drought has destroyed life. Thousands of animals have starved to death. Those who are able to go in search of food do. Further along the road, I met a large group of people striding across the desert bush, piled high with belongings. I asked them where they were heading. There's lots of fighting and hunger in Somalia. We're going to Dadaab,
1: where we hope to be safe, find food, education and medicine for our children.
2: Abdi told me the family is from Dinsor, the epicenter of the famine. It's a 300-mile journey from his hometown to Dadaab. We've been walking for 15 days.
1: This is our 16th. We'll keep on going till we reach Dadaab.
0: Jamal, tell us a little about the conditions on this journey.
2: The condition is horrendous, and some of the refugees have the privilege to pay for vehicles to take them from their hometowns to the Dadaab camps. But uh, others have to walk, and walking means days or weeks. And the difficulties they face is that it's The weather-wise, it's extremely hot. And we're not talking about adults only. They have little children, 10, 8, 7-year-old kids walking for days. So they have to stop from time to time to rest with the kids. So it's very hot. And also it's not safe always to to walk. Uh, You might not imagine, but uh, there are bandits who regularly attack these refugees and, and take their belongings. And also there are wild animals who... From time to time, you hear stories of that eating kids on the streets. It's because they sleep in the open air at night. So they face a, a lot of challenges and difficulties. But what they will tell you is it's better to take the risk to be in a safe environment for the rest of our lives. That's what they will tell you. So from their own point of view, they say if we lose one or two of our kids or adults, the rest of us will at least have something to eat, something to drink uh, in a safe environment. And that's that's their main aim.
0: And can you tell us a bit of what Dadab is like? Is it the safe environment they believe it to be?
2: It's not always a safe environment. The expectation is always it's going to be a good place to live in. Uh, lots of UN workers will look after you, but once they arrive there, they always get surprised because they don't get the assistance they need in order to settle down very quickly because it's a long process that they have to go through. Especially for the first few days, they have to sleep outside and wait uh, for these UN workers to register them. The group I was with them, they arrived at the weekend, so they were waiting. When I left them, they were waiting for two days outside to be registered with no food, no assistant, nothing. And also... Uh, They sleep under a tent. Initially, they think it's going to be a nice house, nice environment, but it's not always the case. And some of them straight away say, oh, we we cannot stay here for long, we will probably go back.
0: David, as we're recording, there's a major food and agricultural organisation meeting in Rome assessing where the humanitarian response has got to. Can you give us some sense of that?
3: Yes, it was... uh As I think the introductory piece that you played demonstrated, it has been an ongoing situation for a long time. It's taken a lot of media attention after the declaration of famine to really draw the world's attention and start donors making the kinds of contributions that are going to be required. But uh, UNICEF has had to scale up our activities in Somalia by a multiple of four from what we were doing prior to this current uh, emergency situation. And even before that, when we we had a budget of $60 million a year for Somalia, and it was only half-funded, now we have a budget four times as great, and it's still half-funded. So there's much more that needs to be done. The UK government, I must say, has set a fantastic example and made a huge contribution, which has been very, very important, But we do need the rest of the world really to step up and take their share of that if we're going to be able to scale up the response adequately to meet the demands, not only in Somalia but also in Ethiopia, where actually the number of affected people is even greater than Somalia, although the number of children suffering from severe acute malnutrition is lower. And that's a testament really to the systems that have been established in Ethiopia, which don't exist in Somalia. So it's a really challenging environment. And I think that's very clear to everyone who's been uh, seeing their pictures on the television.
0: And, and how big is that shortfall at the moment?
3: For UNICEF, our uh, Somalia appeal currently is $226 million to last until the end of this year. We've received $121 million, so it's about 50%. There are some pledges, but you never quite know when pledges are going to be delivered. Um, And even if all the pledges were delivered tomorrow, there'd still be a $40 million gap.
0: Samir, the problem in Somalia is a huge amount of conflict. Can you give us some idea of what's been going on there?
4: Okay, well, there's no one conflict in Somalia. There's multiple conflicts. So it's a very complex situation. And I think the, um, the first conflict that comes to light is mainly one that pits the transitional federal government, which is being backed by an African Union peacekeeping force against an Islamic militant group called Al Shabaab, which mainly controls most of south central Somalia. But you also have a situation where in the north you have Somaliland, which has claimed independence. You also have Puntland in the north, which has claimed regional autonomy. And you also have a lot of international interests in the country. So the U.S. is very concerned with the presence of al-Shabaab in south-central Somalia and the fact that it has pledged allegiance to al-Qaeda. And it carries out direct counter-terrorist strikes in Somalia. Um, You also have international concern around piracy. So there's lots of different interests. There's lots of different alliances. Those alliances often shift. And you also have regional governments um, fighting proxy wars in Somalia. So you have Ethiopia and Eritrea also having their own interests, with Ethiopia very much supporting the transitional federal government, and Eritrea potentially supporting the, um, the, um, the militant groups. So you have a very complex situation. And I think when thinking about... The um, the current humanitarian situation there. There's been a lot of focus on the fact that humanitarian organisations didn't respond early enough, that there were predictions that they're not getting enough food aid inside the country. But I think often we miss the bigger picture, which is essentially that we have a conflict in Somalia, and ultimately that's the biggest cause of the famine.
0: So getting large-scale aid operations up and running in regions where, where some of these shifting conflicts are going on is immensely difficult.
4: Yes, extremely difficult, like especially in south-central Somalia, where al-Shabaab is mainly in control and the, where the two areas of famine were declared in, um, on the 20th of July. Access for aid agencies is extremely difficult. Um, al-Shabaab has banned many agencies for operating. Food aid was banned in 2008. And also in the West, many donor countries have developed counter-terrorism legislation, which ultimately criminalizes um, material support to groups that are listed on terrorist lists. And so many individuals within those donor governments, but also humanitarian organisations operating, face the risk of prosecution if resources are diverted towards al-Shabaab.
0: After the famine in Ethiopia, David, in the early 80s, a famine early warning system was put in place to avoid crises like this. Um, Some have criticised aid agencies, saying they didn't act fast enough. But Samir is suggesting that actually it's just a really difficult situation. What would UNICEF say about this?
3: We've been operating for for 40 years in Somalia, in all parts of Somalia, as an agency. We're the only UN organisation that has offices in southern Somalia. And uh, we are able to operate. I think for us, we were blowing the whistle, if you like, from the beginning of this year, certainly. And it was, I believe, last November that the UN Consolidated Appeal was launched for $500 million, which didn't really get the resources which were required and then there was a crop failure in March and it was not really until July when we started seeing Children suffering from severe malnutrition on our television screens, and the the large numbers of people that Jamal has talked about crossing the border into Kenya to go to Dadaab. It was only then, really, that the world started to wake up and take notice. I think um, the resource shortage has been the major factor that's limited our response. Of course, access and security are also very very significant and important, and the lack of what you might call any kind of normal governance infrastructure and uh, public service infrastructure means that the preventive mechanisms that might be in place in Kenya and Ethiopia, to some extent, are not there in Somalia. So when a drought hits, when a crop failure occurs, uh, people are hit much harder and much faster. And the response needs to be equal to that. And it hasn't been.
0: Samir, you're saying really that the speed of response of the the aid agencies is not the the key issue. So if it's political stability, what can the outside world do to, to assist that?
4: I mean, I think at the moment, given the severity of the humanitarian situation, I do think that needs to be a focus on how can we alleviate the situation and stop the fact that people are on the brink of starvation. But I think if we look at the bigger picture in Somalia and um, I think what the, the international community is trying to do is very much apply a model of a central state in Somalia. But we also need to remember that Somali memory of a central state is that of the Siad Barre regime, which was extremely predatory, was extremely corrupt, and therefore understandably resistant to the idea of applying a um, central state, particularly when it's mainly consisting of a group of Somali elites, but it's also being implemented or expo- imposed externally with very much international security interests at its heart. So I think what's probably going to be more um, acceptable in Somalia is a decentralised system of governance. But ultimately, that needs to be decided by the Somali people. And there needs to be a, a consultation process that brings all the different parties to the table, including some of the more hard-line groups. Because ultimately, I think lessons from other places, such as Afghanistan, tell us that if we isolate those groups, the future, um, future stability will be compromised. Jamal. Yeah, I think picking up what
2: Samir says is the issue is there are so many actors uh, who are not always interested in what is best for Somalis. They have other interests, and that's the big problem, I think. It's, it's Somalis to blame eventually, but other actors are not helping.
0: And do you mean by that actors outside Somalia, so neighbours of the international community?
2: Yes, actors. I mean, the biggest player, I think, is the U.S., which is funding Ethiopia, Kenya, the African Union forces and what have you. And they are focusing on counterterrorism. And as Samir mentioned, I think if you want to bring peace and stability in Somalia, you have to deal with Al-Shabaab. They are Islamists, they are radicals. they don't hide that. They are Salafists, they are Wahhabis. but they have been doing some positive work in the areas that they control uh, they brought peace and stability in the areas that they control uh, and all the rest of it. So I think you have to deal with Al-Shabaab if you are to bring pain, peace and stability. And early on, uh, it says Al-Shabaab banned many aid organizations. It's not true. I have been to Al-Shabaab areas. I have traveled through Al-Shabaab territories, Marka, Baydabo. And I film in fact, Baydabo, uh, uh the hospital, it's funded by UNICEF and Coop which is which is an Italian firm and UNICEF is an is a UN organisation you have Islamic relief you have FAO you have WHO you have Norwegian refugee council who are doing a brilliant job in that area so you have many other aid organisations organisations but the ones they banned are the WFP UNDP the big That's ones That's the
0: World Food Programme the World was food, banned by El The Shabab. World
2: Food Programme and my take on that is they is a power struggle between the WFP and Al-Shabaab. Al-Shabaab will tell you that they haven't been doing the right thing. And w- WFP will say to you they have been demanding money from us. But I think it's, it's a power struggle between the WFP and Al-Shabaab. And that's the reason Al-Shabaab kicked them out.
0: Samir, um, Jamal is raising a very interesting point there about having to deal with extremist Islamist groups. And of course, the obvious parallel is the Taliban in Afghanistan. How do aid agencies really negotiate these kinds of relationships?
4: Well, I mean, I think there's two levels of negotiation. On the humanitarian side, I think it's should be common practice for humanitarian organizations to negotiate with all sides of the conflict for strictly humanitarian purposes. And I think that that's been extremely difficult in Somalia, partly because a lot of organizations operating do not have a direct line with al-Shabaab, particularly its central shura. But Also, you know, there has been sometimes hostility towards them. So, you know, as um, Jamal mentioned, some organizations have been banned, WFP, but some other NGOs as well, such as Care and World Vision. And I think for them it's been quite difficult. And there's been similar difficulties negotiating with the Taliban in Afghanistan. I think that's just part of the general challenges of humanitarian operations, particularly when dealing with groups that have quite hardline ideologies. But then on a different level, I think there's political negotiations, which essentially means trying to identify who within these hardline groups could potentially be someone that could promote peace, that could potentially want to be included in a political process or dialogue. And we used to remember that al-Shabaab is not just one group, that there's many different um, divisions within al-Shabaab, and some members of al-Shabaab might be more willing to engage in that dialogue, whilst others perhaps represent a more um, hard position.
0: David, this has been called the children's famine. Can you just spell out to our listeners, what are the long-term consequences for a country of a famine where large numbers, particularly of children, are likely to die?
3: We know that if children who are suffering from severe acute malnutrition don't get treatment, their life expectancy is between two and six weeks. If they do get treatment, they can, within four weeks, be back to a healthy condition. But there are long term consequences for their physical and intellectual development. And that, of course, has an impact on a a whole generation where we're talking about the famine affected areas of southern Somalia, we are talking about perhaps half the children in the worst affected areas suffering from acute malnutrition. And it's very worrying. And of course, we, we need to make sure that we have the infrastructure to try to prevent this from happening again, but that's difficult in the context of Somalia. We are working on a whole range of possibilities for for the longer term, um, introducing cash transfers, trying to establish posts where multiple interventions can take place, not just nutrition, but also introducing immunisation and water and sanitation and healthcare and so on. But of course, we've got climate change impacts, which affect this whole region and where the severity and frequency of droughts has been becoming more frequent. And really, I think we we are going to see these kind of humanitarian situations happen again in the region. And what's particularly worrying, I think, for the immediate future is if it rains in October, which is when the next rains are due, are the people going to be there to plant their fields and to harvest the crops when they come in? And if So many people have left their homes. Are they going to come back at planting time to take up their agriculture again and have the food to feed their children for the next season? And this is all something which which is a bit unknown at the moment.
0: Jamal, David talks there about climate change and increasing pressure in terms of water scarcity. Can you envisage a hopeful future for your country?
2: You can never give up hope, I think, but... uh... At the moment, I don't see things improving in the immediate term. But when you talk to the villagers and the locals, they will always tell you, "Inshallah, things will 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 be fine." So they're always hopeful. They're always optimistic. And if the rain comes, I think it will. It, this will go away in in the next year or two years or so. And also, people are learning from experience, if if you like, especially the locals and. They are thinking in the long term, but they always need help and assistance to achieve that aim. Eh?
0: Well, that's all for this week's Guardian Focus podcast. For more ongoing coverage of the situation in the Horn of Africa and other development issues, visit guardian.co.uk forward slash global development. My thanks to David Bull, Samir al and Jamal Osman. I'm Madeleine Bunting. The researcher was Claire Provost and the producer was Vivian Perry.
2: For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.